Thanks, Pastor Dave. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the church this morning. Um, I want to especially welcome those of you guys who are here for the first time. Maybe you're back for the second or third. Thanks for uh, worshiping with us this morning. Uh, as Pastor Dave just mentioned, we're having a baptism coming up. I, I really hope that if you haven't been to an orientation, you haven't been baptized, maybe you'll come next weekend as we have our final makeup orientations. I want to start off this morning. I want to share a story with you about a, a, a man. This man, he admittedly uh, was a Christian hating atheist. And he says he used to wear a white power necklace around his neck. He had, uh, he still has this huge demon tattooed on his back. He has a demon tattooed on his arm with 13 horns. He said for 26 years of his life, he was addicted to hard drugs, in particular crystal meth. He literally hung out with killers and convicts and dealers. He says, these were my friends. These are the people that I, I ran with. I call them friends. He went to jail because he was found with illegal narcotics and illegal firearms. Needless to say, this guy wasn't a Christian. Uh, in fact, he mocked Christianity. He said Christians were a bunch of money-hungry hypocrites. About five years ago when this church, this building was being renovated and constructed, ready for us to move in. He would drive down 190th Street on his way to work or on the way to the freeway. He would drive by and he would see that there was going to be a church meeting here. And he said he would, all the time, as he drove down, he would curse and mock the people, the crazies, he called them, that would eventually be meeting here. That's you guys. He's talking about you guys. And he would mock you guys and he would mock us as he drove by. Well, Around that time, the girlfriend he had at the time, when she was in jail, she found Jesus. And so when she got out of jail, she made an agreement with him. She said, I'll go to your NA meetings, your Nar Narcotics Anonymous meetings, if you will go to church with me. He's like, you want me to go to church with you? She's like, yes. She's like, I found a church. She went on Yelp. She found a church, South Bay Community Church on 190th Street. And he said, that church? He's like, I mocked that church. He's like, I'll go with you. I'll go with you to that church to give you all the reasons why I will never go back to that church again. So he came ready. He came to SBCC to attack SBCC. And he says on that morning when he walked through the doors of SBCC ready to attack, he said, the moment I walked through those doors, I was attacked by this little Korean lady named Suna. Right here. He says she ambushed me with love. She embraced me. She hugged me. She took us around the whole church, showed us the kids' crew area, showed us everything in this church. He said, I felt something that I had never felt before. He said, I sat down and I heard the message and I felt like God was speaking right to me. He said, I came back the next week and the Lord spoke right to me. I kept coming week after week after week and the Lord kept speaking directly to me. A couple of years later, Kevin gave his life to Jesus, and he got baptized here at South Bay Community Church. Praise God. I love crazy testimonies that people like Kevin share with us. Real life-changing transformation. And I have to be honest with you, that when I hear crazy testimonies like Kevin's, I look at my life and I can't help but feel like, man, I have such a boring testimony. 
How many of you guys here can relate? My testimony is so unspectacular, it's below average, and quite frank, it's kind of boring. I feel that all the time. I wish I had a crazy story. I was asked to give a testimony one time at an outreach event. I was going to share my testimony to a bunch of business people. It was a businessmen's fellowship. And here's how it went. I, I kid you not, here's how I shared my testimony. I said, hi, my name is Greg Ma. Uh, I was born into a loving family. I always had a nice brown sack lunch with a nice peanut butter and jelly sandwich that my loving mother prepared for me every morning. Never smoked, except that one time I smoked a whole pack of candy cigarettes that I got from the ice cream truck. <laughs> I went to West High, never got into any fights, got a fairly decent SAT score. Got accepted to UCI, which we all know is the Harvard of the West Coast. Amen? <laughs> Amen. My parents love each other to this day. They're still together. We've never been in debt as a family, and my middle name is Claude. No joke. That's a true story. And I, and I shared all this about my life, and then here's what I said. I said, but here's what's crazy miraculous about my testimony. Here's what's crazy about my life. I'm a Christian. I found Jesus. And, and, and really, if you think about it, it's actually pretty crazy. Because I think it's a miracle that for some people, they can have it so good in life that their life could be really good. And yet, by the grace of God, they still have the eyes to see that they are desperately in need of Jesus still. That they still need Jesus as good as life can be. Right? Because I found sometimes it's easier to preach the good news to someone who is broken than it is to preach to someone who has it all together. Sometimes it's easier to get good news to, to people living in poverty than it is to preach the gospel to people living in prosperity. Why? Because when you're broken, you got nothing left and you need hope. I'll take any hope you can offer me. Here, give it to me. I'll, I'll listen. But when you're living like a king, why in the world would you need another king to live under? So sometimes it's hard to reach those who have it all. Well, today I, I want to show you that when life gives you the best things, Jesus is still better. When life gives you good things, Jesus isn't just enough, Jesus is greater. I want to turn you guys to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. This is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, along with 1 Corinthians and a couple other ones. But in Ecclesiastes, we're going to learn about a guy named King Solomon. King Solomon wrote the book. He was a king who wrote this book, and I believe there's a lot we can learn by looking at the life of King Solomon. I'm titling today's message, How to Live Like a King. So get ready, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and as we prepare to go into the Word, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to lead us there, okay? God, we're stopping right here to ask that your spirit would be the one who guides us into the truth that you would lead us. God, I know that everybody here, every single person here comes from a unique situation and unique background. Our, our lives are in different places. But I pray that whether we are rich or poor, whether we are broken or we have it all together, Lord, that today's truth would be meaningful, meaningful, utterly meaningful. And so, Lord, speak to us in very clear and specific ways. God, I, I pray that it would be so evident that you are ministering to us, that it's not a guy on the stage ministering to us, it, it's, it's your spirit through him. So God, I pray that nothing I do would be successful this morning, 
and nothing I do would be impactful or long-lasting unless it's true, unless it's from you. And that's what we look forward to, God. So we give you this time, we give you our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to start us off in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In chapter 2, King Solomon gives us this quick highlight reel of his life. And by highlight, I mean the high life, because he shows us all the things he was able to accumulate. Right? Because look, King Solomon has this heart, and he had this hole in his heart, and he's trying to fill his heart with all these things to feel like he has everything he needs. So he thought to himself, he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll seek fulfillment in the world. If you have your notes, would you guys write that down? I'll seek fulfillment in the world. You could follow along in your notes from the Baywatch or in the app on your phone. But here's what I mean. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 4 goes like this. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And you could pause right there. This list is such an abbreviated list of all that Solomon truly had. History documents him as the wealthiest king in history. I mean, here, here he just gives us a little bit. He doesn't even talk about the woman he had. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings he had 700 wives. 700 wives and 300 concubines. 300 girlfriends on the side, side chicks, 300 of them. He had 1,000 women in his life. He doesn't talk about that here. He also says, look, I, 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 had, I built projects. I had houses for myself. That's an understatement. He doesn't tell you about the palace he built for himself. It took 13 years, hundreds of men building his own palace, known in history as Solomon's great temple. Here, here's a scaled-down version of Solomon's temple. I'm going to show you a picture. It, it was a massive, massive palace. Known throughout the ancient world, you can see Jerusalem in the background, but this was his house. He also built a city wall around Jerusalem. He built a citadel called Milo. The Bible tells us he, he, the Bible tells us he built a whole palace for the daughter of Pharaoh. That's the king of another nation. He built a palace for another nation king's daughter. So he had all these things. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings he had 12,000 horses. 12,000 horses, 1,400 chariots, so many horses and chariots. He had to build cities just to, to, to hold all his horses and chariots. They call them chariot cities. And, and some people could read that in the Bible and say, man, that's so extreme. To the point where the Bible's got to be fairy tale. It's got to be myth and legend. Who has 12,000 horses? Well, actually, archaeology will tell us this is real stuff. For example, excavations have uncovered Megiddo, which is known in the Bible as one of his chariot cities. They've uncovered in the, in the city of Megiddo literally hundreds upon hundreds of stables, king-sized stables, larger than your nor normal stable that would comfortably fit chariots, fit for a king. 
and they're uncovering these chariot cities that the Bible talks about. Archaeology is showing us that this, this, is real, this really happened. This king truly was, as history tells us, the wealthiest king. But listen, this is what he says in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Some of us would knock him for trying to pursue the things of this world and say, man, these are all temporary, superficial things, King Solomon. And yet, look what else he sought. Because that's not all he sought, not just fulfillment from the world, but Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12, next verse, he says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and, the, and also madness and folly. And so he thought to himself, I'll seek advancement in wisdom. Would you guys write that down? Not just fulfillment from work, but advancement in wisdom. Who can knock wisdom? I mean, isn't that a good thing? First Kings chapter 10 verse 23 says this. It says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom and all the other things of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. So this is something from God. He had wisdom that he was being filled with so much so that rumors spread throughout the earth. That rulers from other nations, for example, the Queen of Sheba, heard of this wise man, King Solomon, that she traveled, according to the Bible, 1,200 miles. They didn't have planes. They didn't have cars. She traveled 1,200 miles for the sole purpose of seeing if he really was as wise and as wealthy as they say. It says she came, and she came with all the hardest questions that she had stored up, the toughest questions on earth. She laid it before him, and it says that he answered every single one of them. And I love in 1 Kings 10, verse 5, I don't have it for you guys, but it says, after he answered her, after she saw his wisdom and his wealth, it says, she had no more breath in her. She was breathless. She was speechless. She was overwhelmed by how truly wise he was. Here's what he says in verse 15, though. Here's what the wisest man on earth said. He says, then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. And that's hard for me to believe. I, 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 I can never really imagine how someone so smart and so knowledgeable and so wise could ever be discontent. Until actually not too long ago, I've shared with you guys, I got to be at a retreat with a bunch of Harvard students and one thing I learned, one thing I took from that weekend was actually how many of these Harvard students, as smart as they are, were discontent. Like a lot of them were discontent, and I, I didn't get it, but they started to explain to me why. They felt like they just didn't have what it takes. And I thought to myself, um, no, you have what it takes. You guys are like the top students in our nation. You guys have climbed to the top, and what they explained to me is that there are so many people around us on this campus that we just compare ourselves to and we can't compete with. These are literally the smartest people, and I feel like I'm at the bottom. So it's like, I get it. They, they, they spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours studying, thousands of dollars for SAT classes, prep classes, tutors. They spend hundreds and hundreds of hours doing extracurricular activities, trying to climb to the top only to 
find themselves at the bottom. That, that's got to be really unsatisfying. No wonder they felt this as meaningless. Some of them, not all of them. But, but I look at King Solomon, and he's the top of the top. Like there's no one less, there's, there's no one more wise than him. He's the top of the top, and yet he found it meaningless. And here's why he found it meaningless. Look at verse 16. He says, for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so the question is, how can someone so smart come to hate life when you realize that you can never be smart enough to outsmart death? And he realized, I, I, can't, I can't outsmart death. That, that he who dies with the most wisdom still dies, just like the fool will die. That death is the great equalizer. It is no respecter of persons. We will all die. I could try so hard to get to the, to, the, to the front of the class only to find myself in the same place as the guy in the back of the class, six feet under the ground. And he says, man, this is meaningless. I work so hard, and I find out at the end of my life this is meaningless. So he thought during his lifetime, I'll seek fulfillment from the world. I'll seek advancement in wisdom. And then he thought, I'll seek achievement through my work. Would you guys write that down? He thought, I'll seek achievement through my work. Right? Because understand that Solomon's wisdom and his kingdom didn't come easily. Right? Even though he's a king, he's born with a silver spoon in his mouth. It wasn't a golden spoon. And so he had to actually work and toil for all that he achieved as King Solomon. Look what it says in verse 18. He said, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over my toilsome labor under the sun. So over and over again, he says in this passage, man, I toiled, I labored, I worked so hard, and I come to hate it all. Why? Because I realize that ultimately it's going to be left to somebody else. Like, I can't take this with me, so somebody else is going to take it, and I don't know if he's going to be foolish or if he's going to be wise. I don't know what he's going to do with it. He worked so hard his entire life to build up this kingdom, the greatest kingdom in all the earth, only to find that one day it's going to be given to someone else. How many of you guys growing up as, as kids, you would go to the beach uh, like I used to go and, and used to build sand castles in the sand? Right? And you take your buckets and you fill it with that, that wet sand and you, you make your towers. You make all your towers and you build these strong walls and you dig these moats around it and you fill it with water and you have these little drawbridges and you build up this sand kingdom for yourself. And right when it's perfect and finished and complete, what happens? The wave, the wave comes and crashes right over. Every, it's happened to you guys? You too? Yeah, every single time I built a sand kingdom for myself, every single time a wave will come and take it away. In the history of mankind, every sand kingdom that's ever been built has been taken down. 
Till this day, not one still stands. And it's like, you know, based on your reactions, you guys have had that experience, and it's like God, by his grace, is giving us this childhood experience early on in life to show us the reality of life, that no kingdom will remain standing. And, and Solomon came to that realization at the end of his life, and his fears became reality, right? Because who ended up taking his kingdom? Well, it ended up get, being left for his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam somehow managed to get 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel to revolt against him. So he was left with only two of the 12 tribes that would go with him. And so the kingdom that Solomon built was divided. And that launched the era of the divided kingdoms of Israel. It's a dark time for Israel because now there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom under Rehoboam. So everything that King Solomon built became crashing down, came crashing down. It too proves to be meaningless, a chasing after a wind. So that's chapter two. And that's a brief summary of his life. He pursued the world and actually got it. He sought out wisdom and he was actually filled with it. He worked hard and he crushed it. I mean, accomplishment beyond measure. What was there that Solomon didn't have? That's got to feel meaningful and purposeful when you, when you accomplish all that you set out to do. How many of you guys have ever really given yourself to a project or you worked hard on something or you pursued something to, only to, to actually attain it and you had that sense of accomplishment? Uh, I, I've been involved in a project myself that's been taking a very long time. It's been about a year and a half now. And we probably have about seven more months left. And sometimes it's really stressful. Sometimes it's really difficult to go through. Sometimes it picks up and it's really good. And uh, recently it's been good. And, and so a brother, a friend of mine who comes to this church, I remember we were out in the lobby not too long ago, and he asked me how this project was coming along. And I, I said, it's actually picking up. It's moving. So it's really exciting to see that the, the end is in sight. And he says to me, he says, oh, that's, that's cool, that's awesome. He's like, once you're done, it'll get old. It'll get boring. I was like, cool, thanks, bro, yeah. Thanks a lot for that encouragement, <laughs> right? And, and he goes on to explain to me, see, because he and his wife were involved in a very long project themselves. He and his wife bought a house, and they bought it off the market as is. Well, here's what the inside of that house looked like that they purchased. Here's what it looked like on the inside. It belonged to uh, a, a hoarder. And so instead of hiring a company for $15,000, that was the quote, to haul all this away and throw it away, he and his wife and his family decided that they were going to go through everything. He says, every single day, from morning till night, day and night, we sorted through all of the stuff for five straight weeks, every single day, just going through all the stuff. Instead of having it all thrown away and dumped out, we wanted to make sure that we could return to the owner the things that were sentimental and meaningful to her. And then we would be able to keep the rest of the stuff and sell it if it was worth anything. And he says, as they're going through the stuff, there are all sorts of treasures. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. Like he says, no exaggeration, over a thousand shoes, no exaggeration. Most of them unused, most of them unworn, clothes that still had tags on them, never put on anybody. He says, we found jewelry, we found jewelry. 
Thousands of dollars of jewelry, a lot of them that returned to the owner, some of them they got to sell. They found a purple heart amongst the pile. They found what Pastor Jerry would probably say is the most valuable find, Yoda, right? (laughs) All sorts of Star Wars collections, comic book collections, gaming systems. They've sold a lot of it. They've already sold at least $55,000 worth of stuff. He says there's probably at least $20,000 to $25,000 more stuff. They've had six yard sales. They had one yesterday morning trying to get rid of all this. And I look at that. That's got to feel rewarding. And then not just did they have to sort it all out and and clean it all up, but then they had to remodel it so that they can actually live in it. And after months and months, hours upon hours, hard work, they finally were able to turn this into this. And they were able to turn this into this. And they turned this kitchen into this kitchen. And, and I look at that and I say, wow, that, that's got to be, that's got to feel so good. But it was out of this experience that he says, it's, it'll get old. That excitement wears off. And he says, God was teaching my family so much stuff through this whole entire process, this whole project. And he's, he's like, we're trying to teach our daughters the things God was showing us, that life is full of all kinds of disappointment." And we're trying to show them the facets of disappointment. It shows up in all kinds of forms. He said, for us, this this house will get old to us. It will lose its excitement. He says, but not just for us, even for the lady who lived in here before us. She kept trying to buy stuff to fill these needs in her heart. She's trying to feed her heart only to, to not be satisfied and need to buy more and more until she literally found herself drowned in all this stuff. He said, life is full of disappointments. You could call it a disorder, but the reality is all of us have a void in our heart. All of us are looking to be filled. Solomon calls it a chasing after the wind, because once you grab a hold of it, there's nothing substantial or satisfying in it. Some of you in here, you're in a season right now where you'll honestly say, man, actually, I look at my life and... I'm good. I'd say a lot of you in here, you're living like a king. Maybe you're not the wealthiest person in the world or the wisest person in the world or the hardest working at your job. Maybe not, but you look at your life and you feel like, man, I actually have enough. Like, I'm sure I could have more, but I'm good. It's comfortable. And in that way, I would say you're living like a king. Everything. Maybe you're currently pleased with the house you just purchased or that you're remodeling. Maybe you love the car that you finally got to pay off, your dream car. Maybe you've never felt more loved because of the person in your life or the people in your life. Maybe you love your job. You actually get to do what you're passionate about. Maybe you're happy with the degrees that you were able to achieve and you feel like you accomplished something great when you recently graduated. You're living like a king. King Solomon lived like a king. He enjoyed the world. He enjoyed the wisdom. He enjoyed the work while it lasted. But then he came to the end of his life, and he realized it doesn't last. And here's his conclusion, Ecclesiastes 1. This is the first verse of the entire book of his life. The first verse, he he wrote this. 
Ecclesiastes 1, the, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I, I want to challenge each of you today to live like a king. Not just any king. I, I want to challenge you to live like this king, King Solomon. Because at the end of his life, as he reflects on all that he achieved and all that he attained, he he found a new perspective on life, a new perspective that he lived with for the rest of his kingly life. And it's with that perspective, I wanna challenge you to live like a king. Here's what he would say, here's his new perspective. There's two things I wanna share with you. He would tell us this, focus your eyes above the sun. Would you write that down? Focus your eyes above the sun. Because I just read you the first verse of the book of his life where he says everything is meaningless. Let me show you the very last verse, his last words of this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. These are the last things he leaves us with. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment. That's talking about life after death including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here's what he's saying. Guys, don't miss this. This is a king who, he's saying, look, I have experienced all that this life can possibly offer, literally. I was at the top at the top. I have everything this life offers. This is my conclusion. Fear God. Keep his commandments. There's nothing else that matters. To fear God is to revere God, to, to bring him honor with your life. Why? Because he says, we'll be judged. There's life after death. He says, there's nothing else that matters more than God and life after death. If we focus on life under the sun and we take our eyes off of God and eternity above the sun, then we will go through life with all these pursuits like Solomon did and we will find ourselves crying out in remorse just like him, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. He says, don't make the tragic mistake of living your life apart from God, but in reverence and humility, fix your focus on life and on God who is above the sun. He says, don't make the same mistake I've made. Now, let me ask you guys, show of hands, show of hands. How many people in here want to live a meaningful life, purposeful Amen, right? We all do. We all want meaning and purpose. We're all looking for meaning and purpose. My question is, what does that even mean? Right? What do you mean you want a meaningful life, a purposeful life? That's a question that people have been asking for centuries. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Philosophers, skeptics, thinkers, they're all thinking, what is the meaning of life? Can, can I tell you? What you mean by the meaning of life? Can I tell you what you mean by it? I'll tell you what I mean by it. I think we mean the same thing. I think you and I, we tie meaning and purpose to that which endures for the longest period of time. I right, think about this. That which produces benefit for the longest period of time is that which is most meaningful to you and to me. Right, let me show you, right? For example, what's more meaningful? 
I, I think a lifelong service and commitment to serving the homeless population is more meaningful than one afternoon at the soup kitchen. Would you agree? How about this? A lifelong marriage committed to one person, your spouse, is more meaningful than a one-night stand. You're both involved with another person, but one is more meaningful. A photo album that I give you, if I give you a photo album of the two of us that you can go back and look on over the years, that's going to be more meaningful than a Snapchat I have of us that's going to disappear by tomorrow. They're both pictures of us together, but one is just more meaningful. And so we're looking for, you and I, we're looking for things that will last. We're looking for something that will produce benefit for the longest period of time. And when it does that, then we would say, that's meaningful. That's meaningful. The reality is that everything under the sun will come and go. Everything under the sun has a beginning and has, a, has an end, right? Chapter 3, King Solomon writes this chapter, and this is probably one of the most famous chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, especially for you, those of you who lived through the 60s. You're going to appreciate this. Here's what he says. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time for this, a time for that. A time for here, a time for there. And he goes on verse after verse after verse. This is just three verses of a whole passage where he says, Everything under the sun has a beginning and it has an end. There is a time and a season for everything under heaven. All sorts of things. And it's going to frustrate you to no end. Because you're going to find yourself celebrating the life of one person, and then you're going to find yourself mourning the death of another. My son Evan was born at the same time my grandma passed away. So talk about joy and mourning in the same season. Right? You're going to find something amazing only to lose something valuable. Everything has a beginning. My family, God gave us two kids, and, and it's, it was amazing to try to go through this process of figuring out how to handle two kids and how to live life with two kids. And we finally got a rhythm. We got it down. Life is good. Then what happens? Boom, we're giving you a third reset button, right? And so everything comes and goes. There's a time and a season for everything. But listen, if it's in God's hands, it's beautiful. Because he goes on in verse 11 and says this. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I love this verse. Because what it tells me is that according to God's plan, everything on earth has a time and a season. And we can't figure out all the things that happens under the sun and why it happens the way it does. We just know that in God's perspective, it's beautiful because he's sovereign. We can't figure it all out, but here's what we do know. He has set eternity on our hearts. He has created eternity and the longing for it in our hearts. So that longing for meaning and purpose that we all have, that longing for meaning and purpose, that's actually a longing for eternity. That which is most meaningful and purposeful because it produces benefit f 
for eternity. And so when we pursue the things of this world, whether it's wisdom or the worldly pleasures or our work or recreation or relationships or cars or homes or friends or following, we try to fill this, this hole, this, this void in our heart with the things of this world when it was actually created for something above the sun. We're trying to fill it with things under the sun when it's meant to be filled with something above the sun. That's God for eternity. And he created that in every single one of us. And until it is filled with him, we will always feel deeply unsatisfied, longing, and wanting more. Because listen, even if you enjoy the things that you attain on this earth, even if you enjoy it, you're going to realize that the joy doesn't last. Like my friend told me, the joy will wear off. But even if it lasts until the day you die, you're going to realize you can't take it with you once you die. It will end. Everything under the sun will have its time. It will end. But King Solomon says, take it from me, guys. Focus your eyes above the sun. Focus your eyes on God and eternity. Why? Because that will not end. God is everything that our hearts have ever wanted. Even if you know it or not, he is everything we were created to want and heaven is everlasting. And so you could chase the wind under the sun or you could grab a hold of God and eternity above the sun. That's what King Solomon would say at the end of his life. He says, listen, focus your eyes above the sun. But then he gives us a second thing he concludes with. And, and this one is actually quite refreshing to me. Because he tells us multiple times, write this down, enjoy your life under the sun. I don't know about you, that's refreshing to me. He says, enjoy your life under the sun. Let me show you two verses. This is two of many. But for example, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 12. He says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil, this is the gift of God. I'll give you another verse, chapter five, verse 19. He says, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. I can't believe that's in the Bible. Like, I, I, I'll be honest, it makes some Christians uncomfortable to read this. It made me uncomfortable. Because as a Christian, aren't I called to a life of suffering? Don't I have to give up everything in this world? And, and don't I have to like go through persecution, all, all kind of hardships? Yeah, that, that, that may be true. But, but am I actually able to eat and drink and enjoy? Can I actually have wealth and possessions and enjoy it? Well, according to the Bible right here, yes, please do. Absolutely, please do. Enjoy it if you have it. Now, this is going to be a revelation for some of us in here. It was for me. God actually doesn't mind us taking pleasure in the things that have been given to us. So long as we do not forget the God who has given them to us. If these things are gifts, it implies that there is a giver. So he actually doesn't mind us enjoying them as long as we don't forsake the one who gave them to us. How do I know that he doesn't mind if we enjoy the good things in life? Why? Because 
It is a gift of God. It tells us he gave it to us. Life, your life, guys, is a gift of God. So if it's a gift of God given to us by him, what should we do? Well, we should thank him. We should bless him. We should praise him. We should include him. We should involve him as we enjoy the gifts that he has given to us. Involve God as we enjoy the gifts of God. Life is a gift of God. But let me point your attention to something it doesn't say. Life is a gift of God. It doesn't say life is God. It doesn't say life is God. Because if we pursue these things as if these were our end source of satisfaction and this is all that there is and, and this is where I find all my worth and happiness and significance, that we have made these things our God and we have made these things our idols. And it will leave us empty because we disconnect ourselves from the one who is eternally meaningful. So King Solomon, is, he's saying, don't pursue and chase after the things of this world, food and drink, wealth and possessions, relationships and recreation at the cost of your pursuit of God and eternity. Do not forsake God and eternity. Right, but if we realize that these gifts were given us, to us by that God, that they were given by a giver, then, then we see that these good things that he gives us in life are not an end in itself, but they're actually a means to a more satisfying end. That these good things he gives us are a means to a more satisfying end. That's a deeper appreciation for the grace and the generosity of the giver helps us fall more in love with him and his goodness to us. They are only a means. So enjoy, yeah, enjoy the things under the sun while focusing your eyes above the sun. Let me give you a New Testament example, New Testament application. So we know this isn't just coming from one man's thoughts. 1 Timothy 6 says this, verse 17. says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So we know that God sometimes gives people wealth for them to enjoy. Command them, though, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for what? The coming age. That's eternity so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. God may give us the good life. Some of us will, in here, we will experience the good life, but that good life is only a platform that points to a better life. And we should use it to point people to the better life. Everything under the sun is to be enjoyed, but the best way to enjoy them is when we focus our eyes and our hearts on God and eternity. I want to just close by sharing with you a story about a man. Some of you guys know of him. Some of you guys actually, I know, I know you know him personally. His name is Rocky Seto. And Rocky Seto, he, he grew up with a dream of playing football for USC. That was his lifelong dream, to be a Trojan. Ever since he was five, he remembered thinking, he said, if I just take care of football, football will take care of me. In other words, if I just give my life and my passion to football, then it will give me my identity, my purpose, my meaning, and my mission in life. I just got to make sure I take care of football. Sure enough, he did. 
His whole life gave to practice and training and working out for football until one day he found himself running out of the tunnel at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum in the USC football uniform as they're about to go up against Florida State. And he says, I remember this very distinct feeling as I ran out of that tunnel. He thought to himself, wow, there's got to be more than this. Like, there's got to be more than this. And here's what he wrote. He wrote this. He said, the Lord broke me, Seto explains. He allowed me to achieve my idol, and he showed me the idol was hollow. From that moment on, I was never the same. Football was really important, but Christ showed me that he's way more important. So Rocky got to play USC football. In fact, after he finished his college career, he went on to be a coach, part of the coaching staff at USC under Pete Carroll, the head coach. Pete Carroll eventually got called up to the big leagues. He got called up to the NFL to coach, to be the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And Coach Carroll eventually asked Rocky to come and join him and his coaching staff up in, in Seattle. And so he got to coach alongside Pete Carroll and the Seahawks, and in 2014, shortly after they got there, they made it to the Super Bowl. They, the Seahawks made it to the Super Bowl, and this is going to be like the biggest game of Rocky's life, the Super Bowl. And right before they played in the Super Bowl, he, he got to be on a panel of Seahawks alongside Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson, star quarterback, and some other Seahawks, and, and they were given an interview. And listen to what Rocky had to say before they played in the Super Bowl. Here's a one-minute clip of what he said in that interview. Literally, Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe, and it's it's it just makes sense. It's not like you give up your life and then you get something worse. You know, it's like Jesus is for all of us. You give us the that. worst and get the best. That's <laughs> no question. You know, he gave us everything. We had nothing. He gave us everything. So literally, it, it's just one plus one equals two. It's just that simple. You know, Jesus is better than anything that we could ever hope. Even better than a Super Bowl, better than an NFL career. Is the any NFL coach supposed to say that? That anything is better than the Super Bowl? Don't Jesus, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't know if this Edit is... that out. You know, any, I think some of us here, all of us here would like to say, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But if we ever to win the Super Bowl... To be able to tell everyone that no, Jesus is still better, because as yeah. much as as much as we worship this thing called a ring and championship, although we like to have one for sure, I just can't wait to tell people if that happens. God willing, we'll be able to tell people, yeah, Jesus is way better still, because you're gonna wake up the next day, it's, things are gonna be the same if you don't have Jesus. If you have Jesus, it's still gonna be awesome, win or lose. So, isn't that awesome? Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Sure enough. The, the following weeks after that, they won the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl that year. And they're, they're on top of the world. Everybody in the Northwest is celebrating uh, over this victory. And here was Rocky's response after they won the Super Bowl. He wrote this. He said, this Super Bowl thing is such a big deal to the people of the Northwest, he adds. What's cool is that God has opened up a platform through winning to talk about Jesus Christ, the greatest treasure of all. Why do we want to win? I know the brothers on the team, they want to win to glorify God and tell more people about Jesus Christ. His prosperity became his platform. He enjoyed the Super Bowl. Take that, take that and, and receive it. He enjoyed it 
But the thing he enjoyed most about it is that he was got to tell listening ears that as good as this is, Jesus is better. The Super Bowl is good. Trust me, it is good, but Jesus is better. He is better. By the way, last year, Rocky announced his retirement from the Seahawks and, and football altogether. He gave up close to a seven-figure salary, a million dollars a year, to become the senior pastor at Evergreen Baptist Church in the San Gabriel Valley. That's where a lot of my friends are on, are on staff at, so they get to work with him to tell people about Jesus. Football became his platform. Now listen, you may never play in the Super Bowl, or you may never become rich, but if God has given you anything good in life, and I believe he has, if he's given you anything good in life that you get to enjoy, I want to say enjoy it. Maybe you have popularity among people. Maybe you have outstanding athletic ability. Maybe you have music, musical talent. Maybe you have an enjoyable or well-paying job. If you have anything good in life, the reality is you likely have some degree of influence. Because people will always be drawn to anything good that, that, that we have. Now, you can make these things your God and try to find meaning and purpose in them and them alone. Or you, you can use them as platforms to point to something that is so much better, far greater. Something above the sun. Because life may be full of good things, but he is greater. Amen? Amen. He is greater. King Solomon, in his cumulative wisdom, at the end of his life, with all the wisdom that he had and all his experiences... He concludes, live like this. Enjoy your life under the sun as you focus your eyes above the sun because Jesus is far better for far longer. Jesus for eternity is better. That's how you live like a king. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you guys bow your heads with me? And let's, let's, let's come before the king right now. And I want to give you this time to respond. Just talk to God. And thank him, praise him for anything good he has given you. Everybody has something to be thankful for. You have blessings to count. Count it right now and just give him praise. challenge you now if you will to commit before God say God would you help me today to fix my eyes above the sun to, to focus my eyes on you and eternity and never to take my eyes off of it and commit yourself with, with, with this good stuff that, that you have maybe in this season or maybe in the season come commit to using that as a platform to help point people to a life that's better, a life that's eternal, a life that's meaningful and purposeful, that we would point to, to God in eternity. Father God, you are not only enough, you are more than enough way more than enough you're not just good you are great god you, you you have given us so much lord to be thankful for and i know we all have things that 
we could probably do without, but God, help us to focus our eyes on the God of heaven who we get to have forever and ever because of what Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, it's for that reason we worship and give you honor, glory, and praise. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.